Hi, this is the Search Dog Podcast, brought to you by the National Search Dog Alliance, the voice of canine search and rescue. I'm Megan Ortega. Welcome to the 2021 Podcast Conference, brought to you by the National Search Dog Alliance. A new episode will appear each Saturday and Sunday through November with interviews from National Search Dog Alliance board, members, subject matter experts, and community. We are covering the past, present, and future of canine search and rescue. We are talking about what NSDA is doing and what you can look forward to seeing from NSDA in the future. Listen for search dog stories and more. Find more information about NSDA on our website, n-sda.org. And I encourage you to sign up for our once monthly newsletter while you're there. You can also find NSDA on Instagram and Facebook. Search for National Search Dog Alliance. Our cover art is from the SAR shop, where you can find gifts and gear for you, your dog, and your friends. Find them at sarshop.com. Enjoy! Andy has been involved in search work and canine training since 1972. He's a retired trainer for Connecticut State Police. During his police career, he trained canine teams for patrol, tracking, trailing, narcotics, explosives, arson, wilderness, disaster, water, and cadaver work. He developed the state police training program for cadaver search dogs. Andy trained and handled bloodhounds from 1973 until 1990. His hounds were responsible for over 200 walk-up fines. The Connecticut Supreme Court upheld several cases on appeal, and in addition to that, he's qualified in several states and Scotland as an expert witness regarding scenting dogs. He established the CSP SAR K9 team and served as a team leader and search coordinator. Since retiring in 1991, Andy has conducted numerous seminars, schools, and workshops throughout the US, Germany, Czech Republic, Mexico, Canada, and Japan. Seminars and workshops include cadaver, disaster response, and urban trailing, as well as consulting with law enforcement agencies. Andy is the retired president of Northwest Disaster Search Dogs in Redmond, Washington. The unit provides disaster search-trained canine teams in support of the Puget Sound FEMA Task Force, as well as local response. He's a founder of King County Search Dogs, a multitasked canine search unit that supports King County Police Special Operations for missing person searches. He's, he's been a member and instructor for the National Police Bloodhound Association since 1974. Andy has participated in over 2,000 missions in his career in a variety of roles, trailing dog handler, cadaver dog handler, or in a search management capacity. He's presented numerous papers at national seminars and is the author of the Cadaver Dog Handbook, published in August of 2000. Marsha Koenig has been involved in volunteer search work since 1972. She was a founding member of the American Rescue Dog Association and the Texas Unit of ARDA. She is a founding member of Northwest Disaster Search Dogs and King County Search Dogs and a past member of Region 10 DMORT Task Force. She's the past chair of the National Association for Search and Rescue Dog Committee. Marsha's search dog experience ranges from disaster search across the U.S. and Guam to wilderness, snow, water, and cadaver. She's also trained all of her search dogs in trailing. Marsha's dogs have made finds in trailing, wilderness, water, cadaver, and disaster searches. 
She worked for the Disaster Mortuary Operational Response Team, DMORT, at the Twin Towers following 9-11, and she has prior law enforcement experience as a Mount Rainier National Park Ranger. As a former high school and adult education instructor, Marsha's interests are in teaching and writing. She's taken animal behavior chicken training classes from Marianne and Bob Bailey and incorporates training principles in search dog classes. Marsha's taught at NASAR and numerous training schools, seminars, and workshops. She's the author of many articles and has produced a videotape on utilizing search dogs for water search. Enjoy. Hi, Marsha and Andy. It is so good to be talking to you. Thanks for joining me on the National Search Dog Alliance podcast. How are you today? Just fine. Able to take nourishment. Good, good. Um, so, you know, we're just so thrilled to have you on. Um, but why don't you just introduce yourself? Um, how long have you been working with search dogs? And tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I've been working with search dogs, well, with dogs either in police service or search and rescue since 1972. And I've been through, I think, seven or eight German Shepherds and about five Bloodhounds over the years. Uh, my background is uh, originally a dog handler and then a trainer and in charge of search and rescue for Connecticut State Police. I retired from there in 1991, which ended my Bloodhound career because uh, in my estimation, a Bloodhound does not make a good house dog. So it's all been German Shepherds since. Uh-huh. And you know some people make the argument that German Shepherds don't make good house dogs. Well, you could make that argument too. <laughs> but, but I'm used to... Uh, my my background in training basically was, was training patrol dogs for uh, apprehension and handler protection. Uh, training uh, bloodhounds for trailing. Uh, my second bloodhound set the standard in the state of Connecticut for uh, court testimony on in uh, criminal cases involving dog testimony. Wow. Uh, yeah, I had something like four convictions upheld by the uh, Connecticut State, uh, state Supreme Court. Wow. I also trained narcotics dogs, explosive dogs, accelerant dogs, uh, and then uh, starting in, I think it was 1977, I started training a dog for, at the time, what we call body search, which is cadaver search, which is human remains detection search. But anyway, I had the second working cadaver dog in in uh, police departments in the United States. Wow. I used to handle anything from, from 50 to 150 actual call-outs a year. So uh, with that, kept me busy until I retired. After I retired, I did some training, uh, and I started training with training volunteers. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a complete different th difference for me because... When you're working with police officers, if they don't perform, you can remove them. Yeah. 
and I had some first couple of years were very tough working with volunteers. Because what you have to understand, on the East Coast, uh, it's completely different than the West Coast. The East Coast has never, up until about 20, 25 years ago, has never relied a lot on volunteers for dog handlers in search and rescue. Mm -hmm. And in the state of Connecticut right now, uh, there's three volunteer search and rescue groups, but they don't get deployed. Most of the searches are, are handled by the state police special operations K-19, which I established back in the late 80s. So, and they so, have enough staff to to keep up on calls without using the volunteers? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When I first became a dog handler, there were 12 of us. By the time I retired, uh, retired we had 50 dog teams working in the state of Connecticut. I think they're up over that now. Wow. So, and basically, what our commissioner wanted was a... Uh, working patrol dog team on every shift working in the state. So, and yeah. we also worked with with local police departments. So we, on a on a in service training day, we had the potential for a hundred some odd dogs showing up for training. Right. That's um. You know that that's uh, placing a lot of a lot of value on those patrol dogs. That's awesome to have that kind of support. Well, it's it's a it's a whole different world, and it's it's a different world. You know, I've I've gained a big appreciation for the volunteers because I've worked as a volunteer. Marcy and I established King County Search Dogs in 1997, mm -hmm. and uh, we have a very good working group. But and and it's you know everybody basically donates their time and their money to in the service of mankind yeah but there's also some uh i can't quite figure out how to say it uh, but we'll get to that later it, it has to do with training okay and marcia what about you I was living in Dallas at the time, and uh, my then-husband and I got some dogs, and we joined a dog training club, and they would bring in people from around the country uh, to talk about different aspects of dog training, trick dog trainings, uh, just uh, trailing, and that we got from Glenn Johnson and all of this, and then in 1972, uh, in June 10th, 1972, my birthday, we went to a seminar from Bill and Jean Saratuck from Washington State about search and rescue dogs. And I thought it was really neat, but I said, it sure takes a lot of time. And I wasn't sure I wanted to put in that much time. And here I am 49 years later, <laughs> still doing it. And, and have we won you over yet or are you still on the um, fence? Oh no, oh, no, 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 it's definitely won me over. And then I convinced my then, our, our unit, we just didn't get that many searches. It was not that well known. Water searching had not been started yet. So I convinced my then husband to move to Washington State 
and sell everything so that I could do search and rescue work, right. which is crazy. And then I started teaching is classes. It? Go ahead. I said, is it crazy? Oh, yeah. but I, I'm just joking. We, we, I mean, I think that the volunteers that we all know have done just crazy life moves to be able to support this. Well, then I uh, joined group and um, I, I enjoy, well, I got, uh, Bob and I got involved in NASAR, National Association for Search and Rescue, and he was the head of the, the search dog group. And some, a friend of ours told us about this guy who lived in Connecticut that he might want to speak at the national meeting. And so we called him and he said he would, and it turned out to be Andy. Aww. And that's how I met him. And it was interesting in that he was a police officer and he actually talked to volunteers, which is something police officers in those days didn't do. Mm -hmm. And then he also had air scent and trailing dogs and he could tell you the positive and the negative of each type of dog and how you could use them together. And that was something that was new to me. Right. Um, the dog, the group that I joined, German Shepherd uh, Search Dog Association, um, Basically what happened is, is during World War II, uh, a volunteer civilian organization, Dogs for Defense, uh, helped convince the military to begin training sentry dogs and dogs to, f to find uh, people that were on the fields, you know, after they were uh, injured or something like that, uh, scout dogs and all. Uh, and one of the people that worked with the dogs belonged to the German Shepherd Dog Club of Washington State. And let's see, I have to see. Um, in 1962, get this, yeah. Uh, members of the German Shepherd Dog Club of Washington State, uh, Hank and Janet Wilcox, and Hank Wilcox was the former dog handler, and then Bill and Jean Saratuck decided to start a search dog committee. Um, and, you know, they tried to work out training and everything. They found that they weren't as successful at trailing work because they were a they would be called so late or they could be called so late that there really wouldn't be any trail so they decided to to do air scent work which is like as we've said before it's like a dog um well, like a the, hunting dog in right. the military it was known as scout work yeah okay and so hank wilcox helped them start that and then um as time went on there were differences of opinion which is you know that's typical. Yeah. And they broke off into two, two groups. And in July 1965, they were called on their first search. And they thought someone might be missing, but there was no one. But the first success was in May 66, when they found a 14-year-old boy who'd been missing in a rural area for four hours. And, of course, that was the spark that got everybody interested. And then in March of 69, Gene Saratuck's dog, Bismarck, found the body of a missing uh, skier under five foot of snow on Mount Rainier, and that was their first avalanche find. So they formed in '69. They formed two different groups: uh, Search and Rescue Dogs Association (SARDA) under Bill and Jean Saratuck, and German Shepherd Search Dogs of Washington State under Hank Wilcox. Um, SARDA has disbanded a number of years ago, but German Shepherd Search Dogs uh, is still working today. So they're the oldest search dog unit in the U.S. Wow. Uh, and I, I was a member for about eight years and I still know a lot of people in it and everything. Um, 
at the time, Bill and Jean were getting calls from people around the United States asking, how do you start a search dog unit? So what they would do is they come, and on a weekend, they would tell people about it, and that's when I met them in 1972. Um, they were giving a, a talk, and that's when I said it was a lot of work, and I wasn't quite sure about it. But it was just very interesting. And in fact, it's really kind of strange in that um, I have a, an audio tape from that, and I've, I've listened to it in the past, and it's really different to hear your voice asking questions and knowing where it all led. Mm, wow. Uh, so we started a group in the Dallas area. And like I say, after that, I convinced my then husband to uh, move to Washington State so I could do work because our group wasn't working then. It took a long time for it to get accepted in the U.S., but that's typical of anywhere if it's, if it's a new type of thing. Yeah. And then I was teaching classes all around the country, and uh, Andy and I were called to teach a couple of classes together, and we discovered that we had different perspectives on things because his was from uh, the police law enforcement side, and mine was from uh, the volunteer side. So, for example, when we talked about night searching, he talked about never using a flashlight because you don't want somebody to shoot at you. And I talked about using a flashlight to, or a headlamp to get your way around. So it was, it was different perspectives on the same type of problem. Yeah, interesting. And we decided, after being friends for many years, to get together, and we have taught classes together ever since. Amazing. Um, what is something you wish you would have known when you first started? Got it, Andy. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't either. Maybe how much time it would take. Um, but yeah, but mine was compensated time. That's true. You you do have a point there. Um. I really, maybe I wish I'd known how much of my life it would take up, but um, it didn't matter. No, I wanted to do something with my life, so there's really nothing that I wished I had known because it has taken up my life. Right. I maybe think I would have wished that uh, I could have had a better understanding when I first started, a better understanding primarily of... of uh, subject behavior and how a dog would react to certain situations because I had to work those out over a number of years. Yeah, all trial and error. Well, actually, you know, uh, Sarah Tick did some writing. Some uh, NASAR at the time had a few pamphlets on uh, uh, subject behavior, etc., and I scoured them because basically since I was doing a lot of missing person searches I really needed to be able to kind of uh, I hate to use the word profile but basically that's what I was doing mm -hmm. was profiling their behavior in certain situations and come to think of it what I wish I had known more about is dog behavior and that took me a long time to understand about training 
and how to train, which just makes it easier to train. Um, there was just a lot I didn't know, and I was fortunate enough that Karen Pryor lived in this area, and I had a friend introduce me to her. And she then introduced me to many of these dog behavioral things that everybody's using today. Yeah. She also introduced me to the clicker. Right. And I don't use it for trailing, but I do use it for cadaver work because it marks exactly when the dog is there. Right. And I introduced the clicker to the search dog community. Um, and one time during a NASAR meeting, we took a hundred of them to SeaWorld in uh, San Diego and they got to watch the sea lions. And they didn't use clickers, they used whistles, but it's the same idea. And the, a number of people said, now I get it. Right. So there are, a lot of, there are a lot of things about dog behavior that makes training so much easier once you understand what's going on. Right. If you could have done anything differently, would you? <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know. I, I really don't because, uh, like I said, the first 20 years were with law enforcement. And that was a very structured uh, environment. It was a, uh, it, I, I would repeat it in a heartbeat because it gave me some background in uh, search work that I could never have gotten as a volunteer. So, uh, and I got to experiment with a lot of things because we, we our uh, unit uh, developed, the, well, like I said, we developed the second cadaver dog in, in uh, the United States for law enforcement. The first one was with New York State, uh, Jim Suffolk, and he, you know, the only reason I trained one is he wouldn't tell me how he trained it because he went to the military. Uh. And it was a challenge because I had a bloodhound that would not go in on dead bodies. Uh huh. So, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, but I wouldn't change that whole experience, that 20 years of experience for anything. Now, the other thing is, is we have worked all over the world, Marcy and myself, teaching people from different countries, and that has proved to be a, a, a valuable experience too, but to see how, uh, for example, how search dogs are regarded in Japan, to how volunteers are regarded in Spain, how volunteers recorded in Germany, up in Canada. You know, it's a whole different, uh, once you step out of the United States, it's a whole different world. Right. I would and love to hear more about that at some point. I would probably write more. It's hard, and I don't like it much, but that's about the only thing that I would have done differently. Although I'm, right now, since we can't go to Japan because the they're closed, um, we've been having to train people for trailing virtually through Zoom and through writing. So now I'm doing the writing that I should have done before. <laughs> right. Because I'm trying to do that. And then I'm also videotaping my dog so that they're now, then they are translating it all into Japanese and putting it on a special Facebook thing that for only the Japanese. And to just show a how training goes now we've got some, we've done some there and we've got some people that are very good at this and they've had some fines and everything but these are for for newer people 
and they send us videos and we critique the videos. It's a difficult way to train, but it's the only way you can do it with the pandemic, with uh, everything shut down still. Mm -hmm. In fact, tomorrow, two other people are going to be doing a Zoom thing about cadaver training. So um, it, it's been real interesting, but it's kind of nice to, they've got other groups too that, that work in Japan, but um, it's been very nice to make a difference there. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting to have a, just a much wider reach than you would have had before. I've heard um, I've heard it put that the pandemic has been the great accelerator, uh, accelerating us in directions that we would have made it anyway in a much longer time frame. Oh, good point. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I really liked I liked that concept. Um, oh, I hate Zoom. <laughs> well, you and the rest of us. Uh so, do you have any just stories about your early days in Star in Sar? I want to hear about dogs. <laughs> oh, how about the one with the the house with the swimming pool and all of that? Oh, I, okay. A lot of my work was done on missing persons, but you have to understand about fifty percent of my work was done on criminal cases. And uh, having the first working cadaver dog for Connecticut State Police opened some areas for me in my department and let me out. I think I worked in 20 different states before I retired. But uh, one of the most interesting cases I had was uh, we had a, a woman disappear. Her vehicle is found in a parking lot of a shopping center. And so I was initially sent there to see if I could get a trail to see if where she had gone from the vehicle. Mm -hmm. uh, when we when we processed the vehicle, we found a uh, half an owl. Uh, it was a, a thing that would be attached to a keychain. There was half an owl, the head and shoulders, so it had broken off someplace well the keys were missing okay so uh, no trail except for right in the vicinity of the car which which indicated that she was put into another vehicle mm-hmm well the local police department did a hell of a good job and they uh, when they notified the husband they did a neighborhood check and they found out that from a neighbor that there was some cement mixer working on his property in the nighttime about the time that she disappeared. Mm -hmm. So my next stop was there with the cadaver dog. And we had a search warrant and the, the, uh, the husband showed up while we were serving the search warrant and uh, so he's standing there and I'm working the dog and I, there's this swimming pool with a fence around it in the backyard. And I uh, searched the lawn area, I searched the small wooded area, I, and then I worked the outside fringe of the fence and I got to one end of it and my dog started a real change of behavior. So I said to him, I have to go in there. 
So we went in the, the uh, by the pool, and Rufus immediately goes to the pool house, and he indicates. And then I start working him in the area, and he starts indicating on the concrete slab where there's some chairs on top of it. So I, he, and he gives me a trained indication, so I reward him a little bit, and then we go out, and uh, the, the, <laughs> the husband says, well, the dog didn't show anything, did he? So we go and get another warrant, because we've got to do some jackhammer work and e. stuff. On brand new we, concrete. Yeah, so we we go back the next day, we jackhammer it, uh, we start digging, and we get down, and there's an electric line. And they said, oh, hell. You know, the dog just disturbed her. I said, well, hold on a minute. I went and got him out of the car, brought him in, cut him loose about 50 feet away. He runs over there, and he jumps in the hole, and he starts digging. So they start digging. We found her. Well, number one, the first thing we found was a keychain with half a dollar on it. Mm. We got down, we hit lime, lime uh, powder, and at four and a half feet underneath, we found the woman's body. Wow. So as far as I know, he's still in jail. But that, wow. I mean, I have a number of, uh, a lot of them I can't even talk about, but... Uh, you know, I, I'm missing little kids. Yeah. One little, I made the mistake one time on a missing kid that I had the father go with me because I didn't have a backup. And uh, Susie, my lead bloodhound at the time, takes me right into the woods, then into a swamp. And the next thing I know, I see this little kid sitting on a tuft of thing. But the father passed me out because he said the child was scared of dogs. Ah. But, uh, and it was a good thing because uh, normally I never took family members with me when I was looking for a missing person, especially. Right. So, so it was a it was interesting. I, I, One more. What about? Do you have you seen the movie Fargo? I have. Okay. You know about the wood chipper. I, I do. Well, that might be the only the thing I remember from that style. movie. Well, okay. This is what the movie was based on, actually. It's called Divorce Connecticut Style. Uh, Sorry, repeat, a, repeat that? What was that? It's called the what? Divorce Connecticut Style. Oof. It, uh, missing uh, flight attendant from Pan Am at the time. Her husband was a uh, second officer for uh, Eastern Airlines. She disappeared. She never showed up for work. Uh, the investigation showed that uh, he had rented a commercial wood chipper. So I ended up searching piles and piles and piles of wood chips that uh, the Texas was sending me to when we. We got a tip and we searched along this road and there were some uh, uh, a pile of wood chips in a, in a water course. 
And uh, the dog I was working at the time, Lady, went down and she alerted and they put the forensic team in and they got three and a half ounces of flesh, they got a fingernail, and they got a cap of a tooth. And that was enough to put him in jail for the rest of his life. Oh my goodness. So, <laughs> dogs can pay their own way. That is incredible. Well, I've had I've had a few interesting ones, not as many as Andy, but um, my first after I, I'd done trailing for AKC work, but uh, when Andy and I got together, he says, "Well, you can do trailing with your German Shepherd." So I did it with my German Shepherd Coyote, and um, we took the test, and I failed it because I was so nervous. And then I took the test, and I actually it worked, and I so I went on my first search. And this was a lady that was missing from a nursing home. And the weather had been so awful that the rain was, it was New Year's Day, and the rain was going uh, horizontally because there was so much wind. Right. And they brought me into the nursing home to get a, a scent article. And I was so nervous, I could barely hold the scent article because I was shaking so hard. Because I was like, this is my first search with her. And... We go out, and I circle the entrance of the place, and then I circle it, and she wants to go a direction, but I circle it again because I'm not sure. So she goes this direction, and she takes me off across the lawn and everything, and then um, at some point, uh, there were some other people searching. She sniffs them and then goes on, and then she starts picking up speed, and we're going in between trees, and I'm having to duck to keep from my head getting... Uh, hit and everything like that and all of a sudden she stops at a, a fence and there is some somebody lying on the ground uh just out in the field on the other side of the fence and i'm thinking was this the person i'm looking for i better check to see if she's got gray hair oh my <laughs> and it was yeah. it was so exciting um just so a, that, like Coyote was ready to do it. Yes, she was. And she had a couple more uh, trailing finds at the time. I, I'll tell one that's a combination of trailing and air scent because this was interesting. Um, we had another one was a person that, that had gone missing and he had dementia. And it was in a city. And one of our handlers started on a trail and he worked for about an hour and his dog was getting... A little winded so he wanted to take a rest and said why didn't I start so I started again but instead of going straight ahead she turned toward the left and went down a trail now this is a trail that was just a footpath type of thing and it was bounded on one side by lots of vegetation and the other side by some more vegetation and a few houses so it was kind of like a, a pathway sure. and she just was acting strangely it was like she was kind of trailing, but kind of not. And every once in a while, she put her head up in the air. It's like, okay. And when they called and asked what we were doing, I said, well, I'm not sure because she's not trailing like she normally does, but she's still moving ahead. So I'm just gonna keep working. We got down to the end of the path and we turned right. And all of a sudden she turned around and went up to the edge of the freeway and there was a chain link fence and there was the man on the other side of the chain link fence 
And this time I had to see that his hat matched the hat of the man we were looking for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but what she had done is she had done both trailing and air scenting because he hadn't walked that path. He had walked the one that the other handler had walked. Mm -hmm. And and we figured that he entered the freeway over there and then he'd walk back along the fence. Right. But she was getting his scent coming toward her. So she wasn't really trailing, but she wasn't, you know, the air scent was kind of iffy. But basically, at that point, I knew my dog was working. Right. So I just went along with it and we found him. Right. And you trusted her enough to continue yes. working, even though her behavior was different than normal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of times, particularly when you're doing trailing, you question what's going on. Mm -hmm. Because everybody says trust your dog, but in all honesty, there are times when your dog will take you for a walk. Mm -hmm. One thing that we have learned with any type problem that you do, when you finish the problem, do not put your dog up immediately. Because what they will learn to do, and I don't blame them, is they will make the problem longer because they don't want to go back to the car. Mm -hmm. I've, I've seen this. I have a friend that's had um, problems with this. She has two extremely smart uh, Kelpie mixes. And um, so she's seen this with two dogs in a row. And if, if you put those dogs up right away, they will, you know, even if you do a short, uh, you know, really like a puppy track um, and you know that they know that it's over, they will keep you going and take you for yes. a hike. The other thing that I am doing is uh, with my Sheba is it's, it's easy to train her. She's very food motivated and she's easy to read. But as she gets older, she's more interested in other scents. So that I will do a trail and I will tell her to leave it or not let her sniff things for more than a second, if that. But after we finish the problem, then I just take her for a walk and I let her be a dog and I let her check out all the other odors because I don't want to tell her that she can never do it because that means she'll want to. Right. But I'm just saying that under these circumstances, you cannot do it, but under these other circumstances, it's fine. Yeah, almost rewarding her with, uh, with those other scents right. and access to those other scents. Wow. Um, so were both of those coyote then, Marsha? Yes. So cool. I worked uh, her more than I've worked any of the others. I had, I went through a series of knee replacements. And so I've been off and on for the last three years. And finally, the knees are okay now. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons why I decided to get another dog and start again. Mm -hmm. Even though... We'll see if the dog outlasts me. And a little dog. Yes. I can still handle a shepherd, but I just didn't... It takes a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. So I looked around for a smaller breed that still had a lot of drive. And a lot of people say that Shebas are, are difficult to train. Well, mine is absolutely cinched to train because, as I mentioned before, she'll do anything for food. So mm -hmm. she, she's always saying, what can I do? What can I do? Right. Um, and I don't find her, she's not stubborn or anything. Yeah. Yeah. What a delight to work with. So what do you find are the major differences between your early days in search and rescue and today? Technology. Say more about that. Well, 
Okay, I used to show up at a uh, search. I'd get my topographical map out. I'd look at that. I'd figure out where I was going to put people, figure out what the dog was going to do. And it was all uh, search management knowledge and uh, experience. Today, uh, and we, we really emphasize teaching people to read their dog's body language, know when their dog was on or off scent, whether they were, uh, I don't care what, what type of scent dog they were, but uh, the handler had a lot of responsibility uh, to report back and, and let the search manager know exactly whether their probability detection in an area. And, uh, uh, and today, what do we do? We throw a GPS on a dog. The handler doesn't have to do a damn thing. Oh, come on. <laughs> and, and uh, I mean, when I've, when I've participated in doing some evaluations, I can stay in base. I can watch the dog and handler work on a computer. Right. And, uh, but yes, can you? Okay. Technologically, it's a hell of a lot better because you can, the search manager can get a better idea of exactly how the coverage was. The problem is, is the handler isn't paying that much attention to, and I see this, the handler isn't paying that much attention to the dog. So that subtle indication that they may have hit scent, a lot of people are missing. Mm. So, uh, and, and that's the biggest change. I mean, let's face it, technology has worked out well for the victim or the subjects, okay? But for, in my opinion, dog handlers in the early stages of training need to go back to the old days and work on foundation training a lot more than they do today. I, I, and I have one example for that. There's a certain dog handler who has attempted to certify in cadaver, I, I don't know, four or five times, and the dog doesn't have the foundation, and it's, I mean, if I was the trainer, uh, I suggest he find another occupation. Mm -hmm. Well, I found, when I first started, I, the, the two problems were dog behavior, and learning about it and learning to read your dog. That was on the part of the dog. And the other thing was handler navigation. Now, with all these electronics, navigation isn't as much of a problem. However, if you don't have your GPS, you have to be able to figure out how to get out of there. And a lot of people don't. But it still made it easier. We do not have the big problem we have with people getting outdoor skills and learning learning to navigate and, and also coming into base and telling where they've been and where they haven't been so you know where the holes and coverage are. So that's easier. But you still have people who rely uh, on their trained indications. So for example, mm -hmm. uh, we had one where I'm not real keen about the bringsel. The bringsel is the thing that hangs from the dog's neck that he puts in his mouth when he finds it. Right. Well, very interestingly enough, there was one where they actually found somebody, but again, the person was on the other side of the fence, and so the dog didn't have the bringsel in his mouth. What he kept doing was playing with the bringsel. It was like, I don't know quite what to do. 
and the handler didn't recognize, this was at least a practice problem, the handler didn't recognize that the dog was doing something. Right. And didn't know what they were doing and didn't see it. Right. And it was, it was quite obvious. So a number of people will get their dog to do a trained final indication. Right. But they won't be able to read the dog's body language. And if they don't get that trained indication, they don't read it properly and they could miss something. Right. So what we do when people go on cadaver searches or HRD searches, as people call them now, but um, the general public knows the word cadaver. We always tell people, if your dog does something different from what it's been trained to do and something that you haven't seen before, check it out. Mm -hmm. And there have been more subjects found that way. In fact, um, on one of these in Nepal, uh, our people from Japan went, our friends from Japan, and one of the handlers that we had in our cadaver class said his dog was doing something different when they were searching rubble, and everybody said, oh, there's nothing here, and he says, well, Marcia told me that if my dog some, does something that I don't, that, that's just different, and that I haven't seen before to check it out, and he says, so I'm going to check it out, and they took the rubble back, you know, cleared it and everything, and there was a body down there. Uh-huh. So it's, I like a trained final indication, but I use it in conjunction with reading the dog's body language mm -hmm. because you can tell when your dog is doing something, uh, if, when you're in trailing. When you get near to the subject, virtually every dog will pick up their speed and you'll find that the leash tightens right. and the dog starts going a little faster. Well, you just use that as your clue. Right. Uh, Andy taught me um, in disaster work. Sometimes you have to send your dog in places where you cannot go. It's not, it's too dangerous. And I, I had this in a fire situation where the floor would have collapsed. And sometimes it's dark and you can't see. So what do you do? If your dog doesn't do its trained final indication, come back or to get you or bark or something like that, how do you know somebody's there? Well, sometimes it's a new situation for the dog. But if you listen to their breathing, you can tell that they've got something. Their breathing will be stacked like that. Right. Of course, Andy learned that from chasing bad guys in buildings because he didn't want to uh, get that close to the guy, but he could tell by his dog's breathing. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes a yell if the dog bit them. But we do not let our dogs <laughs> bite people. No biting. Uh, hey, building search was fun. You, you announce, you send the dog in, you will wait for the screen. Yep. That but does anyway, sound like fun. The other thing is, is that, for example, uh, and I see it a lot with, with cadaver dogs, uh, people getting false indications, which they wouldn't get false indications if they could read their dog. Mm -hmm. For example, Carlo used to... Uh, if he worked too long without a break, uh, his trained indication was a sit. So he might go to a sit thinking that he'd get a reward, mm -hmm. except for one thing. When he actually made a find, what pre, what his behavioral pattern was, number one, he would make eye contact with me. Number two, he would sit. Number three, he would make eye contact again. If there was no eye contact, 
He was just throwing me a, an alert, hoping to get a, a, a reward. Right. And that happens a lot. Right. Um, I had a dog that was certified in area search and imprinted on human remains. And we were out, um, you know, doing a hopefully live find uh, the day after somebody went missing. And uh, we had boated out to an island that we were searching that was just, you know, 100 feet off the shore uh, where this person was last seen. And my dog started indicating on my navigator. Um, and Marsha, I think that's exactly what you're talking about. And my navigator and I were looking at each other and saying, well, this is weird. Um, you know, and we went back and let the deputies know. And, you know, two weeks later, that person was found in the water between the island and the, um, and the shore. So, you know, that was one of those situations where we, you know, later when we started actually training for uh, human remains, that particular navigator, my dog continued to alert on that navigator. Um, like, oh. like she had, like when that person would navigate for me, she would associate that with her. Like, I know that this yeah. is the right yeah. thing to do. Yeah. It was very interesting. Yeah. Um, so what were the best things about search and rescue in the good old days? For me, it was flying around the country because there weren't that many teams. Yeah. So, I mean, it was it was nerve-wracking, but it was really neat. I got to uh, Hawaii a couple of times. Mm -hmm. I got to uh, wow. Alaska. I got to Guam. Mm. I mean, this was really cool. Yeah. Guam was something else, you know, and we actually found that this was from a, a an airplane crash. And, we actually uh, found some body parts there and everything. But it was just, you know, once in a while you get these really interesting ones. And then, of course, um, I got to, uh, after Hurricane Katrina, we got to work in some areas. So that was, that was kind of exciting. Most of it's kind of schlogging around. But um, I really, really enjoyed that. And then I really, I, I was trained as a teacher, and so I really have enjoyed that and I've gotten a lot more people to pay attention to dog behavior mm -hmm. and that's been great what are your things oh you just like you just like being in the police well no it's it's, it's <laughs> well you have to understand I've been retired 30 years already I can't believe it okay so uh, when I first started working with volunteers after, well, actually I went and taught at a couple seminars before I retired, but when I started working with volunteers, I was number one, impressed with the quality of some of the work. I worked with, uh, for quite a while with people from Dogs East in Virginia, and the professionalism that they, that, that unit uh, exhibited was unbelievable. Uh, and, and to this day, they, they still have an excellent reputation. But just the, once I acclimated to the volunteer world, let's put it that way, and I wasn't throwing things and swearing at people anymore, uh, then uh, uh, it's been, uh, 
a very interesting career. The, I worked with people all over the United States. I worked with people internationally. And it's and the amount of dedication that, that people have shown is unbelievable. And, uh, and I just hope it goes forward because technology is taking some of the fun out of doing missing person search. Mm-hmm. One thing was nice was when Andy and I got together, he had uh, contacts within the police, so we'd get called on calls like that, and so he and I would go and do it with our dogs. And I discovered that he actually took coffee breaks and lunch breaks and things when we were doing searches. i never done that before. And we didn't live in a tent. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, we lived in a hotel. Right. And what I did was is that I had contacts in the international thing, so that's how we first got to uh, Japan. And that has been one of our most satisfying contacts ever. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you know Terry Ryan. She's big in the, the dog training world, and she does a lot of uh, the chicken training now. She's taken over the chicken training camp and thing. Uh, and she's the one who'd been going to Japan, so she got me there, and then we, we took over the search and rescue part, and we have many friends, and... We are pretty much retired, but we're going back on our own as soon as it opens up again, just mm-hmm. so we can see the people and, and work with them. But it, it's 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 just very enjoyable to work with people all over the world and yeah. all over the country. And I even got to attend the Location and Recovery of Human Remains class at the FBI Academy. Because they wanted to see who Andy's new girlfriend was. <laughs> <laughs> Marsha, you He's sound like him. a born traveler. I am. Yeah, sounds I've been like to it. All fifty states. <laughs> yeah, and being able to travel for search and rescue sounds like kind of a dream. It is, and when we travel other times, I get in contact with search and rescue people, um, and we take off from if we're on a group travel, we take off from the trip where we go to a practice session with some people. Yeah. We've done that any number of times. We really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the most fascinating ones that we went to, we were in Czech Republic, and we went and observed cave search training. Oh, that was so neat. With these monstrous limestone caves and and uh, long distance uh, searches, wow. and it was fascinating to see uh, that uh, because. Uh, occasionally they get people lost in them and wow you know so it was that but uh, I'll tell you the experience with Japan we've been going to Japan since the mid 90s off and on the experience with Japan has been probably one of the most satisfying uh, experiences of my career mm-hmm. and we have some excellent friends in Japan that we we really miss because COVID is put a kibosh to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope that you're able to get back and see see those folks soon. Um, and, you know, just training with those people, once again, that circles back to technology, right? Yep. But it's such a pleasure when they have finds because it's taken them over 20 years to get accepted. And oh. now some of these people are 
getting contracts with their local police departments because volunteers were never used or very seldom used in Japan. That was not right uh, in their culture. Uh, but now they are being used, and it's such a pleasure. In fact, the woman from whom I got my Shiba, um, I was so excited for her because she got called on a search. Two dogs had gone before her, some other groups. They hadn't found anything, so it was it was a missing young man. And so she trailed, and she noticed that her dog kept putting her head up, just like I've been telling you. And she couldn't find quite work it out. So she took her Shiba off lead, which people do not believe, but can be done. And she started over again and let him air scent. And he found, unfortunately, the body, but mm. he did find him. Mm -hmm. But it was nice that she was able to train her dog and also be able to read the dog's natural body language. Right. Yeah. So what are the best things about search and rescue today? And hopefully some of them are the same. I like the fact that they're being accepted or they've been accepted. Mm -hmm. sniffer dogs everywhere and mm -hmm. that is really fantastic um sometimes the people aren't as well trained as you'd like and i'm not i'm you know that's just across the board um but it's really nice to see them getting used and getting them used much more often right well i went you know there's a cultural difference between the east coast and the west coast and uh, but seeing uh, the increased use of volunteer teams is for for people who have put a lot of work into it over the years has been uh, it's got to be satisfying for them. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I would what I would really like to see is instead of so many different standards floating around out in the search and rescue world, I'd like to see a, a Natural uh, national standard, one standard that if you were going to deploy out of your home area, that you had to meet. Uh, what it is now, I mean, you can certify with any way, any of a, a dozen organizations, and each one is a little bit different, mm -hmm. and that would give. Uh, the user agency a good idea if that if they had uh, a standard that everybody had to meet that when we brought in a dog team from King County it would be the same standard as required for a dog team from Snohomish County for example mm -hmm. you know but, uh, but it's, not, been, it's not going to happen they've been talking about that since the beginning but so. I, I mean that's, <laughs> that's the thing because I it, you know it, it's if I were a user, I'd be very confused as to uh, having somebody come in that is certified by NASAR, certified by NASDA, you know, certified by North American Police Work Dog, International Police Work Dog, uh, etc. You know, let's get everybody on the same page so that there's some consistency in training. Mm -hmm. but Do you think that's... Just by pipe dream. 
Right. Do you think that that would lead to consistency in training or just consistency in testing? Well, I think it would, uh, that training would become more consistent also. Mm -hmm. However, if I can do the other hand, um, sometimes people just train for the test. Uh -huh. And that was my complaint about the USAR test, the uh, Urban Search and Rescue test. There's, it's a good test. I have nothing wrong with the test. But so many people just, since they have to do it every couple of years, that's all they train for. And they don't do some of these other things, such as working your dog in the dark and listening to your dog's breathing to tell you what's going on. Mm -hmm. So there are some other, yeah. other skills that I would like people to have. And some people do continue to do that. But some people just simply train to pass the test. And I certainly can understand that. The other thing, Megan, what I would like to see is most of, or 90% of the, the evaluations done double blind. You're saying they should be done double blind. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I happen to be on a committee, uh, forensic science committee that's had taken over after the Swig Dog uh, FBI sponsorship uh, ceased. And it's very heavy on, on suggesting that, that uh, evaluation be done double blind. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing, for example, when I would certify my bloodhounds, somebody would run a trail. The thing was, it was like a missing person. You got a starting point, you either find them or you don't. If you don't find them, you don't qualify. If you find them, then you're certified, for, at least for a while. Mm -hmm. And then double blind, for those who don't know, means that neither the person running the trail, nor the person following, nor the evaluator know where it goes. Right. And that's very nerve-wracking, to say the least. The right. first time I, I ran a, uh, what was, quote, a... A, it wasn't called certification at the time, but it was to uh, see where I stood with my bloodhound Clem. Was down in Tennessee, and the trail was laid by an old mountain man from West Virginia, a good friend of mine. And he said he marked it. So I started running it, and I didn't see any markers. The only marker I saw was when I was wading up a stream, there was a thing of toilet paper hanging down from a tree branch. I found him. He had put one marker on the trail just to make, to reinforce me when I hit it. Right. And believe me, it was a big reinforcement. It's like finding a footprint of a missing person when you're looking for it. Right. So, but... There was nobody with me. It was me and my dog, and the job was to find Bill Graham. Right. Yeah, so a, a lot of testing that I know of right now is single blind. Yes. Um, do you know of any testing that's being done right now that's double blind? Uh, there's a couple units. Uh, well, didn't Paul Martin say that any test that he does for yeah. cadaver work is done double blind? Yes, yeah. so mm. Paul Martin does Interesting. double blind. Um, yeah. So that anytime neither the handler nor the evaluator or evaluators know where it is, that's really nerve wracking to say the and, least. Yeah, it is. Believe me, uh, a lot of law enforcement testing is double blind. Okay. 
Yeah. It has to be. I mean, let's put it let's put it this way. Uh, if you're looking for narcotics, you don't want to be paying attention to your dog and paying attention to the body language of the evaluator behind you, which a lot of people do, because they can read the when the body language of the evaluator changes, they know they're in an area that's hot. Right. So, and one of the best narcotics tests I, that I uh, evaluated was standing outside watching through a window, not having any idea where the, where the source was, and watching a dog and handler work a room and actually find the thing and announce it because he had to put his hand up if, if, his, if he believed his dog. Mm -hmm. So I had no idea where it was. He had no idea where it was, and it, it uh, just showed that that dog was really ready to work in the real world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, gosh, it's just so fun to hear from you, too. Uh, what changes to the search and rescue community are just way overdue? I think they do actually they do pretty well yeah yeah they I, I can't think of any that are way overdue I, I mean there's things can always be improved I mean testing training uh, but I I think that that with some of the uh, people out there who are running seminars these days, uh, some of them are excellent. Some of them I have a problem with because they have no practical experience. And that's primarily your your academics. I think the world of academics, Kat Warren's a good friend of mine, but and she does have some experience. But you get an academic that spends his time observing dogs under uh, controlled circumstances. Uh, he has no idea what happens out there in the real world when you're in an area where uh, you got running water and you got a cliff and you got big trees and little trees and out here Salel and you got to be able to search and find that missing person. Yeah. They have no idea how that works. Right. There's so many factors that just yeah. can't be controlled. Oh, yeah. They're, I mean, let's face it, you can't control all of them. I was amazed when I came out here from the East Coast. First time I went out with, with Marcy and, and uh, uh, Jeanette, another friend of ours, sword ferns and shalal for mm -hmm. understory when you're trying to find a, a little kid, her kid, that is hidden out there someplace. You know, out in the East Coast, yeah, we have some understory, but nothing like what it is here, mm -hmm. where a person could be five feet from you and you have no idea where they are. Yeah, the sword ferns do weird things, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's a... Uh, uh, so when you get the academics involved, yeah, and sometimes that scientific knowledge is, is great. But the practical knowledge of going out and actually doing it is the best experience in the world. Mm -hmm. I have an example 
of that sort of thing. Um, and you have to train the dog to do it. Uh, when we've done searching, and we've done like water searching, where we've put a scent source off of a dock, and you watch the dog, and they go out on the dock, and they may go right to the scent source, and then they leave it, and then come back a couple of times before they commit to it. I've seen them do it uh, when we've had people hiding in rooms, like in a locker in a room. The dog will leave the room and then come back before they commit to it. And I can't say exactly why, but it looks like they're clearing their nose. But it's, it's like when you're trying to find where a noise is coming from, you go to both sides of it so that you can then home in, not like you do with the, um, for avalanche work. Mm -hmm. And you, when you do that, you, you want to see where it's strongest, but you go to where it's lowest. And um, in the disaster test, they want the dog to commit and start barking. And if the dog leaves the area and then comes back and barks, it can be a fail because the dog didn't commit immediately. And you do have to train the dog for that because I found that naturally the dogs like to check out the source of it and see where it's strongest before they commit. Mm -hmm. And so that's just something that's based on what I've observed lots and lots of dogs doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just in terms of the natural dog behavior. Right. And you can train, I mean, you can train some things, but I like to, I prefer to go with the natural dog behavior if I can. Right. Working with that behavior. Is, pardon me? Working with that behavior yes, that's and right. accommodating it. However, I do have, this took me a long time to learn is, if your unit or the FEMA team or whatever it is has a test, just train for the test. Mm -hmm. I mean, train other things, but don't try and change the test or gripe about the test. Just go <laughs> ahead and do it. Yep. It's not worth the time and effort getting upset about it. Do it their way. Yep. And so that's what we've told people in other countries because a lot of times they want their dogs to bark. And here in the U.S., a lot of times we do a refine. Right. Because you might not hear the bark or you might frighten somebody or something like that. Well, when we've taught classes other places and they say their dogs bark at the subject, okay, if that's the way you do it, we'll train you how to do it that way. Right. So yeah. I don't I don't try and reinvent things anymore. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That that can get really frustrating and lead to burnout instead of yeah. you know, being fun for you and fun for the dog, which is how it's supposed to be. Well, I, and sometimes when you're watching training and the dog, for example, the dog will do it naturally when it gets set, it'll drop its nose on it, and then it'll sit. But the handler wants a down. So the next thing you know, they're trying to force it down. Where if they took the natural behavior of the dog and just channeled that, it'd be more of a pleasure for both the dog and the handler. Right. Other than the frustration of trying to force something, and then the dog reverting in, in a situation, an actual situation, the dog reverting to what it thinks is the best way. Mm -hmm. And then the handle will say, well, I didn't get my trained final indication. 
Well, that's because the dog will revert to what it knows best or right. what it thinks best. So, how, but I want to give a however to that. If your unit says your dog must bark at a cadaver, I would train, and I don't agree necessarily, but if that's what the unit says, I will train my dog to bark, but I will do it separately and then introduce it. Yeah. Right. I mean, you, you still have to go along with, it's, I fight a lot less than I used to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, it definitely is a balance between um, fighting with your dog against their natural behavior and fighting with your unit yeah. um, against their policy. And there are a number of ways to train things, so if that's the way they want to do it, that's okay, too. Right. That's okay. Well, as we're wrapping up here, tell us about a dog you'll never forget, and you don't have to limit it to one. Oh, God. Well, one I'll never forget is Clemma, who is my lead bloodhound. He was, uh, I saved him. We were, at a, we were at a fun match with my Newfoundland at the time, and I had a bloodhound that I had inherited from another police officer. And there was a woman there that my then wife got talking with, and, and she said that I was also a bloodhound handler, and, and she said, well, she had this little over a year old bloodhound that was going to be put down tomorrow because he tried to bite a judge in the confirmation room. And I, she made arrangements for me to go up and check on it. Well, that dog turned out that he got an award as the outstanding bloodhound in the field of law enforcement mm. one year. I can't, I, I never counted how many fines I had, but Clem had some very Unbelievable finds over the years. Uh, and I had a, a trail with a find after eight days with him. Wow. I went 15 miles behind him one time for a find. Uh, he was just a, and he hated people except me. He didn't even like my wife, which not a bad dog. <laughs> <laughs> but, and then, uh, of the German Shepherds I've had, Mark was the first one I inherited. Again, I was the sixth handler on him. But Mark uh, took the guy out one time that was trying to stab me, so he earned his way mm. into my memory and my heart for years. So, but I've had a good number of, of great Shepherds over the years. Uh, There was Champ, and there was uh, Lady, and there was Rufus, and there was Marianne, and there, you know, and it goes on and on from there. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're all, I, I made a, a pact years ago with my working dogs. You find one person for me, you got a home for life. Mm -hmm. And that's worked out over the past 49 years. I've had a lot of dogs that... Uh, had a home for life. Mm -hmm. 
You well, have a I, you have a pet dog right now, Andy? Yeah, I have Zoe. She's a Z dog because it's the last of a long line. Oh. But she's a uh, she's just a companion, you know. Yeah. Actually, she's teaching me different things because I have to do obedience with her. Uh, right. I never worried about obedience with my working dogs. Right. But she's a, she's a good company. I talk to her a lot. My Marcy says I talk to her more than I do her. Mm-hmm. Which yes. is probably true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, she's a lot of fun to be around. Yeah. She's a shepherd? Yeah, she's a shepherd. She's just over two now. Mm-hmm. Well, I've had a number, not as many as Andy. Uh, probably Coyote was my uh, best one because... I was able to go on many, many searches with her and a few hundreds and we've had many finds and she also was a clown. Um, one time uh, we went to Hawaii to work with uh, National Criminal Investigative Service and I was there with uh, Sue Williams. She had done this search before. We were missing a person from uh, a robbery. It was a teller from uh, bank robbery and we were searching around and then there was somebody else that was missing a buried body or something they had us do many searches and so we were searching in this uh, area of uh, a Hawaiian homeland type of thing and there was a Hawaiian that was with us and Sue and I were searching different areas and we were looking for a possible buried subject so I had my dog off lead and everything and um, all of a sudden she took off and I said I called her coyote and I heard Sue say Marcy you better come over here coyote had a bird a dead pheasant in her mouth oh no it was like, like what <sighs> what had happened is she had scared the pheasant jumped up at it missed it the pheasant flew around a tree coyote jumped up grabbed it broke its neck on the way down and then got it now oh. here we were in Hawaii, we weren't supposed to touch any of the vegetate, any of the animals, or oh, anything no. like this. And I'm freaking out, and I'm thinking, "Oh my gosh, they're going to deport me!" Oh no! I was just, I was mortified. And the Hawaiian that was with me told me that he had raised this bird from a chick. Oh no! And it slept on his bed, and it was a an endangered species. And I just oh. about. I just, that was it. I melted. Well, turns out he was putting me on. Oh, my goodness. He was having a good time with you. He was having a good time. (laughs) Now, when we got back to the police station, all the police that saw this had their hands over their hearts. And they never let me forget forget it. And they gave me a plaque about the chicken killing dog and everything like that. Because (laughs) Coyote was the kind of dog that they would kill for. I mean, she she would have made a wonderful police dog. Right. But, oh, my gosh. Oh, that is but so she, funny. Oh, it, it, I never lived it down. I was given a stuffed pheasant. There have been a couple of times I've been given stuffed pheasants, one with pheasant feathers and everything like that. I oh, mean, incredible. And then when I went back later, they said that um, they told me where the pheasants were so that I wouldn't, that this was another search, <laughs> so that I wouldn't. <laughs> It was like, I was just mortified. Stay away from this area. This is where yeah. we keep our endangered yes, right. presence. Although, <laughs> I actually, when we got off the plane, I taught her to carry a, a 
stuffed pheasant, uh, you know, a toy in her mouth. So we got off the plane with it. So I kind of went into that, too. Nice. That's amazing. But, uh, aside from that, she was a great dog, and I got to go to a lot of places with her. And then I had my knee surgery, and I was off and on and off and on. One of them didn't take, and I had to have it redone a second time. So my dog, um, Raven, after that, was she didn't have as many searches but she was the best behaved dog i'd ever had and this is one time when i wish that i had known that later because i could control her at a distance mm. she could do down at a distance and all of these things and it was absolutely wonderful and you know it's like why didn't i learn this earlier mm -hmm. so it's you know there's a lot of training that but she was a very nice dog and she was a great comfort to me each time I was re recovering from my mm -hmm. uh, surgery mm -hmm. and she did we did get a chance that that was one nice thing is we did get a chance to work um, a mudslide the uh, oh, the also mudslide here mm -hmm. yeah. and uh, while we didn't dig down to it she did find where a little baby was buried we just it was set up and we couldn't get down far enough but later I heard that another dog handler found the infant there mm -hmm. but what I really enjoyed about that is because again I had trained her so well that by voice and arm commands I could just send her out into all these places to look at that I couldn't get into because I would have sunk down in the mud right so it was really nice to be able to have enough experience with both dogs and I had worked mudslides before so that I was able to work my dog at a distance and make sure she covered the area right and then who knows what will happen now. This is a new breed for me. And Kit is a kick. So we'll just see if, if my body lasts long enough. I'm doing my best. And we'll see what happens. But she is an absolute pleasure to train in trailing because she's so easy to read. And the other thing is I have the experience so that um, I'm able to read her better. And I'm also able to let her do more things and then help her when necessary. But not over help her. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. If not, we'll still have a lot of videos for for people to refer to. Right. For other people to learn from. For other people for other people to learn from and there's a lot of if I can convince Andy to write down some of his I, things with trailing, um I've written instructions for trailing and he can give all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, he doesn't brag about it, but he's had hundreds of fines with his trailing dogs. Mhm. Mm so it's really interesting. And then next time, I think eventually, um, we ought to talk about some things about uh, how different dogs work, what the strong points and weak points are, how you can work them together on searches and, and various things like that. I would love to talk about that. Because since we've done more than one type of dog, and some have worked and some haven't worked. Um, we can tell you why and we can tell you, we can at least give ideas for when things don't work out because I've had that happen too. Right, right. That sounds amazing. I would love to, to revisit this and, and revisit many, many topics with you both. Um, thank you both well, so to. much for joining me today. This has been a real pleasure. Um, what a treat to talk to you guys and I'm glad that you uh, you both are in a good position now with your dogs, and Kit sounds like a real fun 
a real fun dog to work with. Well, thank you, and uh, she will have NASA um, will have uh, a chance to give her a test. Wonderful. We can't wait. <laughs> so I'm going to do the trailing cadaver with her, so we'll see which which happens, but I'm not ready. It's going to be a while. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that is just so cool. Um, I wish you all, all the best with her, and uh, I look forward to talking to you both soon. Okay, thank you. Thank okay. you. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the National Search Dog Alliance, the voice of canine search and rescue. See more about the important work we do at n-sda.org. Special thanks to our guests today for taking time to share their experience and stories with us. And special thanks to our II Education Program Manager, Annalisa Burns, for scheduling and liaising for the podcast conference. If you would like to be a guest or suggest somebody else or submit questions for future guests, get in touch with us at podcastdiv at n-sda.org. Thank you for listening to the Search Dog Podcast. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to help others find our work. 